Well, good morning. Well, that was a rather somber response. You know, the Scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so, you know, some of us wake up in the morning and we say, thank goodness it's a new day. And some of us wake up in the morning and go, oh, no, it is day, right? So, good morning. morning. Oh, that was just wonderful. Hey, it's been great to... uh, be speaking with you the last few weeks. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to talk about Amos this morning, from fig picker to plumb line prophet. In just a little bit, we will look at what a plumb line is. But I got to ask you a question. How many of you have actually heard someone preach through the book of Amos? There is one person. And so where were you this week when I needed you badly? Uh, I am telling you, out of 146 verses, 141 of them are difficult, five are positive, and in fact, I want to ask you a second question. What is the most difficult thing you have ever had to say to someone else? We'll put it in this context of confrontation. You had to confront someone. Usually, it's because there's a truth to be told, there's something that needs to be righted, a wrong that needs to be corrected. And you had to say that tough thing. This is why no one wants to preach on the book of Amos. It's not politically correct. He's going to give us 141 verses of judgment, five verses of promise and hope, 141 verses of confrontation and and what we would say condemnation, five verses of compassion And that's why it is so hard for us to get into the mindset of a guy like Amos. But if you will join me in prayer, let's try to do that this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us through your word, and I would ask that this message would come alive to us today. Don't let the messenger confuse the message. And I ask that you would open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. To put it Bluntly, Amos might have been the Mark Driscoll of his day, if this puts this in context. But there's something very interesting about Amos. Of all the prophets in the Old Testament, he was the only layperson. In other words, he was doing his job. He was, when he was called to ministry, he was tending his sheep and trimming his vines, and he's called into full-time ministry as a prophet to Israel, which we'll talk about in a a moment is problematic because he's not from Israel. He's from Judah. But I believe he's a great model for all of us in the church today who want to be used by God, who may think we don't have those gifts. Hey, I'm just a, and you can fill in the blank. Or maybe we don't have the experience, and we certainly, at times, if it's a confrontational message we might have to bring, we certainly don't feel like we have the authority. But he also gives us this exhortation. It's a cautionary tale about how we deal with injustice in our world today as well. I remember the most difficult conversation I ever had to have with anybody and to date in my life. I was 20 years old. I was an intern, a lowly intern, just one step beneath the bottom of the food chain of ministry, if you know what I mean, right? And I am doing my thing with junior hires. And the church I went to, the pastor, 
was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And it was a fabulous, fabulous series. But I was studying it as well in my own study, and I noticed that his words were remarkably identical to the words of James Montgomery Boyce, who wrote a classic commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it was my belief that he was plagiarizing the entire sermon and just reading it as his own. I went to my college pastor and I said, Dave, um, I have this book and this is the sermon and I think he's reading this word for word. What should we do? Notice when you're in trouble, you always want to bring someone with you in the confrontation, right? What should we do? His response was, I think you should talk to him. He, I said, would you go with me? He goes, I'm not going with you. I go, you're with me, win or tie, huh? And I felt I was out on the edge of a branch. Now, you've got to understand something. This is not something I want to do. I'm, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to go to that pastor. But I respected him greatly. He was actually fairly famous, and if I mention his name, you might have known him. And I went with fear and trembling to his office. It was the end of my summer of internship. And I said, I've been enjoying this series, but I've got to ask you about this. And he denied it. And in fact said, in a patronizing, kind of condescending way, when you get a little older, you'll understand that the pressures of ministry, sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. And it shook me to my core. I was young. I was impressionable. And this guy that I looked up to kind of wrote it off. I never had the same experience at that church going forward. But it left an indelible impression on my life. By the way, when you notice, if you ever notice my notes, I actually put my entire notes up on the website every time I preach. You see all the things I should have said and didn't say, all the things I misquoted, everything that I studied, I kind of put up there. And most of the time in blue, I put anything of a quote from somebody else. It's changed the way I approach. Now, people make light of it and say, oh, it's no big deal, you know. When you steal from one person, it's called plagiarism. When you steal from many people, it's called research, right? And so today, as we look at this text, that was my hardest confrontation of my entire life. And even as I share it, I found my stomach. I was feeling sick inside. And so I want you to understand, when you have to confront something that's hard to do, it, it's not easy. It, it, it makes your stomach churn. And I think that puts us in the mindset of how Amos must have felt when he has to go and kind of bring judgment to the people that he's called to bring judgment to. And so it's three simple little parts in your outline. We're going to see the panorama of judgment. I'm going to kind of take you through nine chapters very quickly. And then we're going to look at the profile of Amos. Who is this guy and what did he do? 
And then I'm going to give you four points of personal application, I think, that will zero us in on the text today. So let's look at the panorama of judgment. And we see, first of all, in first six chapters, there's eight pronouncements. Now, I am not going to read six chapters worth of pronouncements. I'm going to give you the highlights of it. There are eight pronouncements, and if you look in your text closely, you're going to see this phrase repeated over and over again, for three transgressions and for four. In other words, for three transgressions and for four. It's like saying the fourth transgression is the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's, it's like the cup is full with three and four, it's overflowing. Uh, these, re- these offenses had been repeated over and over again, and so he starts with going to the surrounding nations of Israel. Now, again, let me give you just a reminder of what Israel's like in that time. We're talking 750 B.C. Um, there are 12 nations, uh, 12 you know, tribes. The 10 in the north are called Israel. The two in the south are called Judah. He's from Judah. He's called to confront the Israelites. But before he does that, the 10 tribes in the north, he's going to confront six kind of foreign nations. So, as he begins this confrontational message, they're feeling this is pretty good because we're, we're kind of pointing out our enemies, you know. It would be like kind of calling out, you know, how uh, some of our, you know, nations in the U.S. is related to and how we, you know, sometimes don't get along with folks uh, maybe in the Middle East or et cetera, et cetera. So they kind of like this, but little does Israel know that he's get, they're getting set up, all right? So there's eight nations, and it, it starts every time, thus saith the Lord. So the first one were the Syrians, all right? And you can see that and they're all in chapter 1 and chapter 2. The Syrians, they had killed innocent people while in battle. In fact, it would uh, harm civilians. Then the Philistines, they were making slaves. He's comp- they had, in fact, departed, uh, uh, deported an entire nation. We see that in Jeremiah 13, 19. He brings judgment. In fact, you'll see four out of those five cities in verses 6 through 8. Um, uh, he brings judgment to. Then the Phoenicians for breaking a treaty. And we know that the Phoenicians had this relationship with Israel because of King Hiram's assistance to David and Solomon in building the temple. And it was cemented with the marriage of Jezebel and Ahab, an unholy alliance. But no king of Israel had ever made war against Phoenicia. So they had broken that treaty. Then you have the Edomites. Now, where, who are the Edomites? Remember, that's the line of Esau, you know? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... And there was Jacob, Esau, two sons, and that was because of their revengeful spirit and pursuing their own brethren. And then the Ammonites, they are condemned for violent crimes. And uh, one of the things they did, would at- they would attack pregnant women uh, in battle. And the Ammonites and the Moabites, these two groups are descendants of Lot, and that sorted story there. Uh, one uh, was the line through the older uh, daughter, and then the Moabites through the, uh, through the elder, or younger and then elder. The Moabites is the sixth um, one he's condemning, and uh, uh, there's all kinds of injustice there. And then he turns the corner, and the seventh one he condemns is Judah, and the eighth is Israel. And so it's always easier to kind of call out your enemies, but now it's a little closer to home. And he kind of blows by uh, Judah a little bit in chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, but they're not exempt either. They didn't keep the statutes of the Lord. And then he saves four chapters from chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 6, verse 14, is this scathing set of sermons against Israel, the ten tribes in the north. 
And each begins with this phrase in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word. And he gives, launches into a sermon. So three sets of sermons that are not fun to, to, to speak. And it would be hard for Israel to imagine that judgment can even come to them. Because remember, at this point, it's, they're pretty prosperous. Things are going pretty well in Israel. In just 30 years after this judgment, they're going to be taken over by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. But right now, it's kind of a lap of luxury. They're enjoying life. And little do they know that they're going to fall. And he's so upset. I'll, I'll give you one illustration of how he confronts them in a moment. But I want to just bring a parallel Oftentimes in a nation, in a country, when things are going well, the prosperous, the, it's prosperous, uh, there's wealth, oftentimes that's at the hands of someone who's being taken advantage of, to the least, to the lost. Think about times in our own country where there's been prosperity. Oftentimes it's been at, at the consequence of those who can't take care of themselves. And so he's upset, and uh, just to give you an example of how upset he is with these guys, turn to Amos chapter 4. It's the second of his three diatribes against them. Look how he describes uh, the women in chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. He is on their case. He calls the women, no offense, lady, he calls the women a bunch of cows. Now, you say, well, what are the positive attributes of a cow? Well, let's think. What do they do? They eat and eat and eat. They're kind of, they're like a uh, consumer of food. They, all they do is eat. They're a walking appetite. And in fact, when they, what they want is more. And I asked myself, why was that so bad? Because it represented this nothing is ever enough mentality. He's calling out Israel because nothing was ever enough. They were basking in their own prosperity and they had kind of rejected God. Well then, if that's not bad enough, he gives five pictures of the judgment. So he preaches against them three times. And then in part two, five pictures of judgment. And that's in chapter seven, eight, and most of nine. And that phrase, he goes, thus the Lord showed me. And he gives us these five pictures of judgment. The first is locusts. And he says in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, minor maybe of the plagues of Egypt, right? Symbolizing that God's going to take action in the swarm of locusts devouring the people's uh, portion. And then he gives a, a, a judgment picture of fire. Uh, under the, the figure of the fire, the second version uh, comes through a, dr a devastating drought and the water supplies dry up. We know that this is uh, true from Deuteronomy 32, 22. Then he does something very interesting. At the end of that, those two first judgments, he says, but hey, God's going to relent because someone pleaded on their behalf. And he relents and he doesn't going to do it. Just like Abraham pleads on behalf of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he gives a third, and I think this is the one that I'll spend the most time on of these five judgments. He then gives this illustration of the plumb line and turn to chapter seven. And I want to show it to you because it's a very, I don't even, I didn't even know what a plumb line was this week until I talked to my carpenter friend, 
Gary Miller, and he showed me one. I mean, I had an idea of what it is because Precept Ministries has a plumb line, you know, on their, on their logo. But it, the plumb line goes like this, chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall, and a plumb line was in his hands. I'm going to have Kenny uh, illustrate this for me. I've got a plumb line, and I've got a level. See, I think most of us know what a level is. So, Kenny, stand up here. Help me out because I didn't ask you this. But what do we use this for? What is a level used for? It tells us what. It makes sure the dining room table is perfectly even so nothing rolls off. So, if it's flat, all right? So, this is a modern-day invention. Let's put that down, and let's look at what a plumb line does. If you, You can just set that down on the ground. And now, show me how a plumb line works, because it's got this, like, long string, and, and what do you do with it? Well, back in the summertime, my dad was a civil engineer, and I used to run a, a survey team. Okay. And I would have to, to survey the land, and I would have to find the property marker. It used to be a little steel rod that they had buried. Mm-hmm. I would have to look up the longitude, the latitude. I would put my transit over that. But then I had to put this on the bottom of the transit to make sure that I was completely level and completely straight over line of the o- over the property uh, point. Because if I wasn't, then when I ran the when I ran the transit and did the draft of the property line, I'd be I, I could be way off. So okay. If I was off just a little bit, I could be 30, 30, 40, 50 feet off down there, and the owners would not be happy. All right, so it's a measurement tool, and it's, it's, it's plumb. It's straight. It's vertical. There's no variation, right? Correct. If it was just a little bit off, then you'd be way off when you do a survey. So this, was, this is the only way you could do it to, to make sure that your, your transit was directly over the property line and the lines that you threw out were correct. There you go. I needed him earlier this week. Believe it or not, we did not rehearse this little dialogue. Thank you so much for illustrating that. So I'm just going to hold this here. So he says about this plumb line, and he says in verse 8, And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And he said, I see a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people of Israel. I will spare them no longer. He's saying this, friends. Which side of the plumb line are you going to be on? Are you going to stand for righteousness? Or are you going to stand sin? Are you going to stand for God's judgments and His truth, or are you going to make up your own truth? And so, the plumb line is a dividing line in this case. And in fact, I think as we look at this plumb line, it tells us something that if something's crooked, this will point it out. This straightens things out. In fact, carpenters, if you think about that, they're not much into relativism, are they? Well, if it's kind of straight, no. It's either straight and true or it's not true. There, it's, there's absolutes. And he says he's going to measure them by the one standard in, that counts in this. And that where's his heart for God? And what is that heart represented? Well, if you read in the text, it's their treatment of the poor. It tells me something about our relationship with God. How do you care And he's going to give us three examples in just a moment of who he means about who his heart is for. It's like he said, look, I'm setting this plumb line in the very midst of my people, and I'm never going to pass by them again. Remember, they're thinking about the Passover. They got a a do-over back in Egypt. But of course, Israel has long been defined as those who, who had been passed over that God had protected them. 
He says, no, there's no more free passes. It's time to be held accountable. What side are you on? Now, when we get called out with something like that, it's always interesting. We don't want to be measured against the plumb line of God's word. We want to be compared to people who are less than godly. Well, I'm, at least I'm not as bad as this dude over here. I mean, come on, God. You've got to kind of work with me here. God says, no, this is the standard. Yeah, but I'm not that bad. This is the standard. Yeah, but I haven't robbed a bank. This is the standard. I haven't cheated on my wife. This is the standard. And that's why the law tells us that, that we can't ever measure up. The wonderful news of grace is that standard is perfection. It's holiness. It's God's heart. And in our own efforts, we can never get there, can we? We can never be true except through, except through the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you, and this is going to get a little uncomfortable by the end of the sermon, is your heart in tune with God's heart? Because he's going to talk to us in just a moment about widows and orphans and the oppressed. And I'm going to ask you by the end of the sermon, which side of the plumb line are you on today? This is a very, very convicting sermon, and I'll tell you why, because of an experience I had. But hold that thought. Well, right in the middle of these three judgments, the only narrative in this entire text happens in chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. And Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam saying, Hey, Amos is conspiring against you, verse 10, in the house of Israel, that the land is unable to endure all of his words. Because verse 11, Amos is saying, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. So Amaziah goes to Amos, the priest isn't liking this bad news bear prophet, and he's saying to them, go you seer, flee to the land of Judah and there eat your bread and there do your prophesy. He said, hey, there's no room for you here in Israel. Get out of town. Quit bringing us bad news. Life is good here. Why are you going confusing things, you soothsaying, you know, cheap trick prophet? I don't want to listen to this garbage anymore. Get out of here. Isn't it also interesting anytime someone says something of truth and it's harsh and it's hard, we want to dismiss the truth. We kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, let's just temper this because how you say it, sometimes it's a little easier with honey, right? How you say hard truth is really important. And in the New Testament, we work hard in the body of Christ to say truth in love, right? I don't see a whole lot of love in Amos. It's just like, boom, boom, boom. It's like a heavyweight fight, and they're like, boom, boom. It was kind of like what I saw last night when I went to see Transformers. It's just a whole lot of metal, boom, boom, boom. And that's what's going on with Amos. And, you know, Amaziah doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. And so he says, get out of town. Well... Amos says, all right, you want me to get out of town? Well, here's one parting shot for you. And uh, he s- predicts that Amaziah's wife's going to become a prostitute, his children are going to be slaughtered, his property is going to be seized, his, his death's going to occur in a foreign land. Take that. Now, I'll be seeing you later. Now, think about this. You say, John, why would you pick Amos? Of all the people we could have been an average Joe. This guy seems like superhuman because he's just so on the mark. Well, he's not done yet. 
He gives them another judgment. That's the overripe fruit in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, the fourth vision. But this one's not going to be discounted. And just like the summer heat ripens the fig, they'll, the, Israel's ripe for judgment. And then the bottom line, he just gives a whole series of judgments in chapter 8 and 9. One, a solar eclipse we know about it in history on June 15, 1763. In chapter 8, verse 9, we see famine in the land. In chapter 8, verse 11, we know all kinds of, of history of famines. And then the final vision, the fifth vision, opens up with the Lord standing before the altar in Bethel, commanding the people to tear down this place. And as it falls down, the worshipers are killed. You say, wow, John, what a fun message for our summer series on... Average Joes, you just spent the first 20 minutes talking about judgment, condemnation, all the bad stuff that's going to happen. Well, here's the positive. In the entire book, here, here's the promise. Look at the last five verses. Three promises after judgment in verse 11. First, he says he's going to reinstate the Davidic line. Look at that there. Look what it says. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. Now that's a positive note. Because remember, David was a king that was loved and beloved. And so um, this was a positive thing. Then in verse 13, he says, I'm going to renew the land. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes whom, who sows the seed and when the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will be dissolved. He's going to renew the land. And then lastly, he's going to restore the people, verses 14 and 15. And I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, and they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. By the way, this has a, a, a historical um, Application. We know that they did get taken captive. They didn't get it restored. But many, many people read this as a prophetic utterance that when Israel became a nation back in 1948, that this is the fulfillment of this prophecy right here that had historical application and then future prophetic impact. That, my friends, is the book of Amos. Now, if that's all we were doing today, just trying to exposit the text and tell you the content, we'd go home rather underwhelmed, would we not? We'd go, thank you so much, Pastor John. We're so glad Pastor Scott's back for next week, right? So let's try to turn it. What do we get from this mass of judgment and condemnation? Let me suggest a few things. First of all, what we see from the profile of Israel, and then four practical applications. The profile of Amos, well, who is this guy? Anyway, I mean, he's doing this. Let me just remind you who he is. His name means Amas. It literally means to lift a burden or carry. And it's so interesting. He was the bearer of burdens of bad news to these people. Now, it's not to be confused with Amos, A-M-O-Z, the father of Isaiah. And in fact, where does he fit with all the other prophets? He's He's the uh, contemporary of Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah. That's when his time is. And the guys, the kind of old guys, the old timers that were in front of him were Obadiah, Joel, and Jonah. Well, what did he do? Well, let me suggest that he did three things, and this is where it might apply to us today. What was his occupation? First of all, we say in, in chapter 1, 
verse 1, and in chapter 7, verse 14, says the word of Amos was among the sheep herders from Tekoa. A sheep herder from Tekoa. So, number one, he was a layman, not a trained teacher or pastor or prophet. He's a shepherd from Tekoa. That's 12 miles south of Jerusalem. He's minding his own business. God came to him in this vision, and it must have felt like I am this kind of uneducated hillbilly from the south, and I've got to go and do something I don't want to do, and I've got to go confront the people in the north. Secondly, we know that he's a sheep breeder, not just an ordinary shepherd. The word that's used there is a Hebrew word that is not used normally for shepherds. It's uh, N-O-Q-E-D, not the R-O-E-H word that is normally used. And it was used of breeding. So we think he probably managed a big operation. Large herds of sheep, goats, probably in charge of other shepherds. He was really a rancher, a rancher, and probably fairly well off financially. And he probably lived pretty comfortably, and so God brings him to this pivotal intersection in his life. Have you ever been there? Life's going good. You're making the money. You're at this intersection in your life where God goes, I got something more for you. You go, no, 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 I'm just doing my job, getting ready for retirement. God knocks on the heart, on your heart. Says, no, I've got something for you. I need you to do this. Now you say, great, just as long as it's not an Amos kind of thing where I got to go to like Washington, D.C. and confront the president or anything like that. I just don't want to do that kind of stuff, right? But there is stuff that God's calling us to do that interrupts us in our life. And we got to decide today, how do we want to respond to God? Thirdly, it says he was a fig picker. He's a fig picker. And by the way, the fruit that's been on the screen, that's, that's actually a, that's, that's a fig. I didn't know what a fig was. I don't eat figs. Um, but it says in chapter 7 a little bit about what he did. This is kind of the famous passage, you know, that, where we get this fig picker thing. Chapter 7, verse 14, And Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. He's a fig picker. Now, that's a meticulous job, I got to tell you. I learned, did a little study about fig picking, and in that day, they'd have to actually puncture the fruit before it ripens so the insects could get out. That just disgusts me. I don't know why we'd eat it that way today. But he also says something besides being a fig picker. He's, I'm not from the school of the prophets. So these prophets actually went to school. He's, he's a layman, he, like I said in the first point. He, he didn't go to seminary. He wasn't born to a preacher's family. He's what, one of what we call two writing prophets, W-R-I-T-I-N-G, writing prophets. And his appraisal of Israel is not good. It's like he was an appraiser, and he's coming to your house and go, mm-mm, it's not worth what you think it is. He goes, Israel, what you think your life is, it's not worth what you're saying. It's, it's, You've got calamity coming. So God chooses this kind of well-to-do, rich, herdsman, fig-picking guy from the south to go confront the worldly excesses of both the foreign nations, but more importantly, he just used those six as the warm-up. Those six foreign nations is just a warm-up to Israel saying, don't think you're any better than they are because you're worse. It would be an example from our history of someone from the north during the time 
of slavery coming from the north, condemning the tobacco-growing southerners for condoning slavery. That's how popular this message would have been. So with all that as a backdrop, the history and who he is, then what is our takeaway today? Let me suggest four things. Number one, God is more concerned about your availability than your ability. I know you've heard that before. Let's repeat it again. God is more concerned about your availability than your ability. He was a layman with a message. And I am so glad that there are people in this church who are called to do stuff that normally most of us probably wouldn't do. And whatever you are passionate about, God's going to gift you for it. He's going he's to use you. Now, you say, well, that's easy for you to say, Pastor John, because you're a pastor and you kind of get paid to do good stuff, right? You know, it's kind of your job. But how about the rest of us? We have to go work 40 or 50 hours a week, and then you call us to do ministry. I go, yeah, we do. Because we believe that all of us have a ministry and our availability to his call is what's most important. But just to keep, keep a little bit of an even playing field here, I have two ministries that I'm pretty passionate about that are outside of our church that I, quote, don't get paid to do. One of them is I speak to high school kids and have for years in public schools on two topics, on suicide and depression as well as um, kind of healthy relationships. Got to do it this week at Oaks Christian again. By the way, there's nothing more difficult than speaking for two hours to high school kids in summer school who don't want to be there when it's sunny outside. That's a tough call. I think I'd rather be Amos. No, I don't think so. The second is that I'm involved in a ministry to Mexico with Hugo Ministries, and that's a, that's a ministry I want to have in serving down in Mexico. I'm the chairman of the board for that missions organization. And so those are ways that I want to give back, that God's burdened me with. But what's God burdening you about? Is it sex trafficking? Is it the homeless? Is it for the immigrant that doesn't speak the language? Is it for latchkey kids? I mean, there is something that God's calling you to, and if he's tugging at the heartstring of your heart. Maybe you ought to listen today. Secondly, second thing we can learn from Amos is calling out injustice in our culture is never popular. Calling out injustice in our culture is never proper, uh, popular. It takes a lot of courage for Amos to do what he's going to do. And I go back, what's the boldest thing you've ever had to do in terms of confronting somebody else about something that wasn't right? Now, we can pick all the popular ones in our culture today, right? I know what's going through your mind. Okay, well, is he going to talk about abortion? Is he going to talk about gay marriage? Is he going to talk about immigration reform? Is he going to talk about rich versus poor? I'm not going to talk about any of them. All I know is that when you confront injustice, it's not easy. But notice he doesn't whine, doesn't complain, doesn't say, hey, God, I don't, well, I don't want to do this. He didn't run like Jonah did. He said, okay, he's going to man up. And so when you are calling out injustice in someone else's life, which isn't popular, it's not easy, and it may have to start with your own life, maybe you need to ask yourself this simple question. What makes me weep or pound the table? What brings you to tears or what, what makes you angry? And I think for some of us, let me just talk plainly. 
I get so busy doing stuff that I find my heart encased in what's in it for me. Because I'm too busy, and I'm pastoring the church, and I've got to prepare for the sermon. So wouldn't you know, it is just uncanny. I'm in the middle of this text, and Wednesday, and Nancy knocks on the door. And what happens? You know the story, how it's going to play out. There's a guy, Russell, out here. He's kind of creepy, and he wants money. Now, she didn't say it exactly like that, but we've got code, because when it's awkward, she gets these big, dull eyes, and she talks really quick, and she says, like, and you need to talk to him. Now, this is, a, this is for professional senior pastors. This is Scott's job. Where is he when I need him? I'm studying to prepare on how to treat the homeless, the needy, the disenfranchised, the marginalized in society. I can't be bothered with this. And I was on the phone at the same time. It was just crazy. So I said, okay, just a minute. And I stayed on the phone like five more minutes, and she came back in a second time. She goes, like now. So I come out of my office. I say, hi, my name's John. He goes, my name's Russell. He sits down. I said, well, Russell, what's your story? What is it that you need today? Now, I know what he needs today. I know what he's going to ask today. It's not like any other. It's the same request almost always. He goes, well, let me tell you a story. And then he was just honest. He says, I'm a paranoid schizophrenic, and I think Nazi skinheads from Orange County are chasing me. So I got out of Garden Grove, and I went to the Ontario truck stop. I got a ride to this place here today, and he went on. But he opened with, I'm a paranoid schizophrenic. Now, I'm not making fun of any mental illness. You understand that. But my mind goes, okay, so you kind of set the opening salvo, like, you're making this all up. Do, 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 do. And I said, well, let me ask you a few questions. I began to ask him some questions, and he got very belligerent. And he goes into how he's, he's hurt people before and beat them up. My chair is on rollers. I back it up just a bit. As I talk to him, I realize I don't think he's going to hurt me, but I think he's mentally unstable. I wonder if I should call 9-11 and have someone, you know, if he needs to be, you know, taken. But as we talk, he starts raising his voice. Now, this is a, a vowed former skinhead himself, and I see the tattoos. And I don't know what possessed me, but I came out, out of my chair, and I said, look it. You need to pipe down. Do not yell at me. You're your, I'm your best chance of getting hope today and help today. And by the way, buddy, this isn't my first rodeo. You're not the first one who's asking me for money. I'm not asking for money. Well, what are you asking for? I just need a room for tonight. Then I felt like the loudmouth frog. I said, oh. He needs a place to sleep. Well, by that time, Nancy's about ready to get on 911 to call the police because she hears this noise. I see, jo uh, this is so cool. There's another little thing. So there's um, Josh in the room next to me. He comes and he guy, like, looks in like, you need some help, Pastor, Pastor John? I'm here for you. So make a long story short, we, he sat down. I sat down. He said, I want to help you. But you got to learn 
the way you ask is as important as what you ask for. I am going to help you today. The people of this church are going to help you today. So I got his identification. And just to let Nancy know all would be good as we walked out, I said, Nancy, I photocopied it. I said, hey, if I don't come back in 30 minutes, would you call the police? She didn't think that was that funny. I thought it was pretty funny. And then I said, would you step outside, Russell? So he steps outside. And she goes, you can't do this. You can't go by yourself. So Josh is standing there. I go, hey, you want to go on a road trip? And he goes, yeah. So Josh went with me. So we take him over there, and we hear his story. And we're just now, it's out of the I need the money to what's really going on in your life. And he talks about how he committed his life to Christ, but it just... Life hasn't gone like he thought. I said, I bet you're hungry, aren't you? He goes, yeah, I'm really hungry. So I took him to McDonald's first and got him a gift card. Then I took him over to the, the hotel right off of Las Virginis. I said to the front desk, my friend Russell needs a place to stay tonight. And I'm going to pay for this for him, and would you just take care of him tonight? She looked at me with that kind of knowing look like, thank you, Pastor. Now, I want to tell you, I did not want to do that. I don't feel good about it because I feel like, oh, yeah, he probably hit up another church you know, last week, and he just goes from church to church. And I told him, I said, Russell, there's a part of me says, I don't really want to do this, but God commands me to do this. It's the love of Jesus Christ because I don't have much love. I admit it. And you know what, friends? I'm haunted by passages like Matthew 25 that says, verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you drink? And when did, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in and, or naked and clothe you? And when, when, did, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. How can you read that? I, now, you know I get a little emotional, like, okay, he'll get over it, you know, t you know, chill out or when you'll be fine, you'll get over this, get on to your life. I don't want to get on with my life. When the Teen Challenge girls were here two weeks ago, it just tears me up. So I said to the director, I said, I, I, we connect with these girls once a year. I see them, I preach, it's a different group every year. Three years in a row now, I preach the same group, well, different group, but same group. So I want to do something different this year. I'm going back, I'm going to them. End of the month, I'm going to do their chapel. Our kids go and sing to them. I want us to have a connection with Teen Challenge. Maybe God's calling you to join me on the 30th. Go up with me. Need all the women who want to come with me to go and measure to the ladies, okay? So calling out injustice is not 
easy. It's never popular. What makes you weep or pound the table? Thirdly, God's heart's for the marginalized in our society. And I won't take the time to read it, but look at Deuteronomy 24, verses 17 to 22. It's on the screen. God's heart is for the marginalized in society. And he gives you instructions. He says, you shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. Go down to the next slide, Wendy. Verse 20, when you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the burrows again. You shall, it'll be for the alien or the orphan. Leave some fruit, it says. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you should not go over it again. Verse 22, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. Well, who's he talking about here? I want to suggest that he's talking about the minorities, the mistreated, and the marginalized. The aliens or immigrants, the mistreated or the orphans, or the fatherless, marginalized or the widows. Why? Well, what he's saying is these three groups of people are often taken advantage of. They couldn't defend themselves. They have no rights. You know, there are 36 verses in the Old Testament that tell us to show justice to these people, that God commands us to treat them well. Who are our marginalized in our culture today? I'm going to suggest it's the homeless, it's the immigrant, it's the mentally unstable. Those are three that just came to my mind. It's the widows. It's the people who need help financially. It can barely make rent. So he condemns this disparity between the rich and the poor. He wants us to care for the powerless, not just kiss up to the powerful. Do you get that? He wants us to care for the powerless, not just kiss up to the powerful. In my flesh, I want to be around the powerful. I want to be around people who have a lot of money, who, who do things. I'm ashamed of it. I'm ashamed that I get so busy I don't see what's out there in front of me. Now, look at I'm not here to make you feel bad today. I'm just saying this is what's going on in my heart dealing with this text this week, and, and you have to apply it for your own life and what God's calling you to do. And then lastly, God judges us by how we treat the least of these. Our heart for God is judged by what we do, not just by how we feel. God judges us how we treat the least of these. Who are the least of these? Well, let's look at Proverbs 19, 17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. You see that throughout the book of Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 14, 31 and Proverbs 17, 5 if you want to check it out. How about Psalm 68, 5 and 6? A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. 1 John 3, 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of the God abide in him? How do we treat those on the margins of our society, friends? I'm going to have Terry Cleveland come up, and I, somebody run me up a, a handheld real quick. I forgot to get that. Um, and I'm going to have her share her story. This is just one woman's initiative 
because God's moved in her heart about something she's very, very passionate about. And she didn't ask to do this. In fact, I didn't give her any warning until yesterday. So she didn't have to fret about it. Tell us your story. Okay, well, first of all, I have to confess I love food, I love to cook, and I have never had a day in my life when I've had to go hungry. So I'm very, very grateful for the blessings that I have and for a husband today who's a great provider. About eight years ago, some lovely neighbors of mine told me about the service project they were involved in hosting uh, meals for the hungry and homeless that are local in our area. Well, when I was a kid, I was told to clean my plate because there were starving kids in China, and I am well aware of the starvation in the third world countries, but this idea of the people in our own backyards was, it just hit me hard. So it was a no-brainer. I said, well, how can I help you? And I, all I had to do was show up at Westminster Presbyterian Church with enough peas to serve 50 people. And when I arrived, those lovely neighbors of mine had organized this beautiful banquet of really good, healthy food that was so lovingly prepared. And you could tell that the people that came to enjoy it um, felt their love. These people were not called the homeless. They're called our guests. And that was my first experience eight years ago with what's called the winter shelter. Um, suddenly after that, that lovely family fell on hard times and had to move. And I slipped into this spot of hosting the winter shelter dinner whenever there's a fifth Wednesday. Then I found out what the winter shelter is. So um, the winter shelter is a 365 meals a day program that's organized under the umbrella of Lutheran social services, but a variety of local churches make sure that every day of the week, all year round, the hungry and the homeless in our area are fed. And during the winter months, which is why it's called the winter shelter, these people are provided with a dry, safe place to sleep. And it's amazing to me how Unrelated churches can come together and provide for the people that are right here in our own backyards. We don't judge. We don't know what circumstances brought these people to this place. And quite frankly, I see a lot of the same faces. It's been over seven years now. And, um, you know, you don't question it. Maybe some of these people could possibly provide their own meal, but they're lonely and they just need companionship. All I can say is those seven some years ago, um, I came to my ABF small group and I said, hey, I've got this new job, will you join me? And my ABF small group became my winter shelter team. Since then, my team has grown to include a lot of local youth. I've had Oak Park High School cheerleaders, you name it. I have an eighth grader, well now ninth grader on my team who just shows up because she enjoys helping. Um, I have friends. And um, what I see is God provides. So it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. He's provided me with a team that will always come through so we never fail whenever there's a fifth Wednesday. And all the other teams in our community are there every day of the week to do the same thing, to provide these people with a loving, healthy meal that they would serve their family. So. It's healthy, well-balanced, diabetic-friendly. Um, you know, we don't just pull out the frozen lasagna, not that there's anything wrong with that, but these people are treated with love and God is present. 
That's just one woman's story about how God moved her heart for the least of these. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this, this morning we could have all kinds of emotions. We could feel condemned. We could feel confronted. We could feel badly. We could look at Amos's life and say, yeah, but that's just not me. Or we could just listen to your still, small voice and say, Lord, what are you telling me today? Lord, for the layman in our church who feels inadequate, who feels like, hey, they're just a fig picker doing their thing, God, will you bless them in their various ministries, from children's to whatever they do, would you bless them? And then, Lord, for those who have a hard truth that they've got to confront someone on, you give them the boldness to say truth, that the plumb line of their lives would be in alignment with you. And then lastly, Lord, maybe you're moving us to think about the marginalized, the minorities of our culture, the ones that have been taken advantage of. And you say, Lord, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Lord, today, after this service, if, if there's anybody like that, if they'd come and talk to Terry or to myself, we'll find a way to help them align their heart with yours in this area. Lord, we just want to be used today. No guilt trips. We just want to be used by you. And that's our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's message wouldn't been in the top 50 that I would have chosen to preach. Because it's a message that calls us to do something beyond sitting and listening. And so I'm going to ask you that if you have a story of something that God's moving you towards, email me this week. If you don't know how God wants to use you, but you know that there's something, Terry's going to stand right up here and she'll take your name and you can join her. Or if you want to go with me to Teen Challenge and on the 30th, let's load up the cars and I'd like to bring 20 women. Wouldn't that my... Honey, I'm bringing 20 women with me to Teen Challenge. You come with us. And whatever God's calling you to do, Let's listen to his voice today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing. Take all of us, take every fiber of our being and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless.